There's this scene in the movie Moneyball where Jonah Hill's character, Peter Brand, a passionate yet inexperienced 25-year-old economist, is talking to Brad Pitt's character, Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, about how there's a failure in baseball to understand what is really happening, which leads baseball teams to mismanage their players and their teams. And there's this one part where Hill says, people who run ball clubs, they, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Baseball thinking is medieval. They are asking all the wrong questions. But when Billy Bean started asking the right questions, everything about baseball changed. From scouting to signing players to evaluating players in trades, new statistics combined with state-of-the-art software, computers and the internet, baseball was no longer the same game in the front office or the fantasy field. And what we're doing now in cycling training is going to look medieval compared to the future of training that lies ahead of us. When prescriptive artificial intelligence hits us, will everything we do in training change? Mostly everything will change in some way or another, except the one thing that matters most, the human side of coaches and athletes working together, using their strengths to get the best out of each other. From Semi-Pro Cycling, this is Ride Better, Faster. I'm Damien Roos. On this show, we're going to take a look at how AI will impact your cycling training, inspired from a beautifully written and thought-provoking article from Alan Cousins called Coaching in 2030, How Artificial Intelligence Will Change Our Profession. We're going to take a look from the perspective of an athlete and follow the chain of evolution in analytics and how they relate to training platforms and what the future looks like for athletes and coaches. Plus, find out what repeated sprint training in hypoxia is and how it can make you sprint better, faster in our new Science of Fast segment. At the start of the article from exercise physiologist and Ironman coach Alan Cousins, he quotes from Brett King's book, Augmented, a quote that highlights one of the most profound changes that we will see in cycling training. That is, advisors have worked on the principle of information asymmetry, where they have better information than their clients, for over 200 years. And this is going to change because machine intelligence will soon have information asymmetry over these advisors. In other words, coaches have long relied on having better information than their athletes, but that is changing with the rise of machine intelligence. The introduction of machine intelligence is only the beginning of the changes that we'll see in the next 20 years. The level of disruption, behavioral shifts, and changes are unparalleled. Cycling training and software has been through a slow and steady evolution following the chain of evolution in analytics, where it goes from descriptive to predictive and culminating with prescriptive. To understand how AI and machine learning will impact your training, let's start with where we are today and what Cousins calls rules-based systems. By the way, these are not strictly AI, but do fit into the puzzle. It's safe to say that there are a lot of rules-based systems out there. These are where you fill in some details about yourself and your goals, and the software generates a training plan. There are lots of apps out there that do this type of near-coach-like experience. That is, they generate a training plan off the information you input, and then also make changes if you miss a session. Some apps in this category include FormFinder, Spoked, Enduco, Bike Evo, Exert, Velo Pro Bike, Today's Plan, PK, 
PK, PKRS.ai, AI endurance. Now, some of those examples may not be exclusively rules-based systems, but as we move down the chain, you will see how advanced they need to be to be classified as anything else. And next up is descriptive analytics. As Cousins rightfully mentions, we are currently in the age of descriptive analytics, meaning we have lots of data, lots of data, and this is made possible from hardware, the wearables, the gadgets, the gizmos that make it possible to collect everything from traditional data points like heart rate to things like free weight bar velocity. The current software is more about presenting this data in a way that describes the current state. The dashboard on Training Peaks is an early example of this, and today's plan used the same data and took a sideways step to show it in a different way. We've been doing this for a while, and it's what makes it possible for me to coach an athlete on the other side of the world, or any other remote coach to get the information they need to make meaningful training decisions. Of course, nothing replaces good old communication as part of this, nudge nudge, The big issue here is knowing how to interpret the data. I found that picking a few metrics that are meaningful and doubling down on the knowledge gathered from different types of athletes in as many different situations as possible has made it more effective for me, but it is in no way perfect. There is so much data coming in that it's almost impossible to sit down and make meaningful decisions every day, even with the magic number of seven athletes. We just don't know how to use all the data to make decisions. Some software examples here are, like I've mentioned, Training Peaks and Today's Plan, but also the software Inside. Next, we have Predictive Analytics, software that crunches data to tell you what's going to happen to your form. All the heavy lifting is done by the program. It does this by modeling the data and making it meaningful. WKO5 with proprietary metrics and Golden Cheetah with its non-proprietary metrics These metrics line up with physiological systems and therefore model what is likely to happen to your performance. Saying this though, they're not at the same level as some research projects that aim to give responses on a certain course of action. For example, the paper from 2018 called Towards Machine Learning on Data from Professional Cyclists performed a pilot experiment on machine learning to model physical response in elite cyclists. They showed that it was possible to train a long, short-term memory machine learning algorithm to predict the heart rate response of a cyclist during a training session. Cousins has some other examples from other sports, but even this stage is still a ways off. But that certainly doesn't discourage me from talking about the next step where the biggest impact on your training will come from. And I'm going to quote directly from Cousin's article here to capture the potential and the magic of the next step. Consider, just for a second, what will happen when an algorithm comes along that is able to act as a data scientist for each individual athlete and communicate the insights into a simple, actionable recommendation for the coach. Consider a machine that can digest and remember years and years of various input streams, training files, competition files, heart rate variability data, sleep data, wellness measures for a given athlete, and is then able to use this information to run thousands of simulations of different potential actions in its brain in a split second of what would happen if you choose a particular training session for that day and then be able to finally return a simple answer for this is the optimal action for this athlete today. This process represents the new world of prescriptive analytics. End quote. 
Prescriptive analytics define or drive the prescription dose content of training for a defined outcome. It draws a direct line between each session you complete and how that is impacting your fitness. As an example of this, you would start with a specific fitness goal. Say it's, I want to increase my four-minute power. The program will take your historical information and create a training session or plan and tell you exactly what you need to do to achieve the goal and the time frame that it will take. This is what Cousins is shooting for with his platform, Human Go. To me, frankly, it is just super exciting stuff. So what does this look like in 10 years, though? Alan does a triathlon coach example of what coaching will look like in 10 years. I'm going to flip it and do it from an athlete's perspective. You wake up in the morning, you go to the toilet and weigh yourself, where you get an instant message on your watch of how much water you need to drink in order to restore your hydration. You also get an individualized breakfast plan with the exact carbohydrates you need to get through the training day. Meanwhile, your sleep and recovery data has been plugged into your AI coach. Your recovery is in the range that you are good to go for the highest intensity workout you can handle. Your real coach confirms this and your training for the day is set. A nutritional plan is sent to you for the day's training and you pick the right amount of gels and sports drinks to go into your bidden. On your bike, you're doing a warm-up where you'll be monitored for fatigue. You notice a low reading on the ready scale. You send this to your coach in real time who jumps on a quick call and decides to lower the intensity for the first effort as a test. After the first effort is all clear, your coach increases the rest of the efforts for the day. You complete your efforts and warm down until you are told to stop because you're not gaining any more adaptations and need to maximize recovery. Once the session is finished, the data is loaded in and resets the plan, ready to make suggestions the next day based directly on this information and your recovery. How's that for a change in the way you train? The basics may be there, but the thing that's guiding you is completely different and based on a completely different information set and the way that that is used to give you the prescriptions for the day. So it's not necessarily going to change the basics, but it will certainly make the cycling training of today look medieval. I want to take a hot second to talk about the future of personal coaching and being a coach in this new world. As the days of coaches holding all the information is slowly ending, Cousins makes the prediction that the need to obsess over the data will reduce and this will leave coaches to return to the more humanistic side of coaching. So what does this coach look like in this new world? I see prescriptive platforms still being tools that help coaches do what they are there to do, get the best out of their athletes. Right now, these types of tools are being used to make a plan and show progress towards that plan in more detail than ever before. But in the future, a coach will change the way that being a teacher will change, moving from being the bearers of all knowledge to supporting athletes on their journey. A coach will facilitate discussions, help athletes set and meet goals, and provide one-on-one mentorship and feedback. They'll have extra time to get to know their athletes and their athletes' families on a deep level and are clear, organized, and responsive to feedback and concerns. And most importantly, they will support athletes in building the skills they need to be their best selves. 
Personally, I'm ready and confident in the idea of offering a coaching service based on the augmentation of athletes. And while we aren't at the prescriptive analytics stage yet, I want to take a close look at what the options are out there now and who's getting close. So as part of my investigation into the current state of AI training platforms, I'm going to test out all of the advanced options and report my findings on the show. So keep an ear out in the future for some shows dedicated to really cracking open the black boxes of these platforms and seeing what's inside and if they can really offer a benefit for your cycling. Alrighty, it's time for a new segment of the show, The Science of Fast. This segment of the show is where it's 100% science and 100% fast. Well, maybe not 100% fast, but sounded pretty catchy, so I left it in there. This time, it's an emerging training technique called repeated sprint training in hypoxia. Here are the headlines of this training method. It's the most recent altitude hypoxic training method to have been developed. Repeated sprint training in hypoxia has had 25 studies published in the five-year period following the Pioneer article in 2013, and with only two studies that did not report any beneficial effects. And without going into the potential mechanisms behind the results in general, repeated sprint training in hypoxia leads to superior repeated sprint ability. This is faster mean sprint times or higher power outputs associated with better resistance to fatigue during a repeated sprint test in normoxic conditions. So not at altitude conditions. Where hypoxia is induced by voluntary hyperventilation at low lung volume, this is where you hold your breath during the sprint with your lungs half full of air using a technique called the exhale hold technique. This may also improve repeated sprint performance more than in normoxia. Practically, Repeated sprint training and hypoxia benefits have been demonstrated for a large range of team sports, rugby, football, lacrosse, Aussie rules, field hockey, and endurance, cycling, track and field, cross-country skiing, and rackets, tennis, or combat sports, jiu-jitsu. The repeated sprint training in hypoxia paradigm requires the completion of maximal, short duration, typically less than 30 seconds, efforts interspersed with incomplete recovery periods, less than 60 seconds, in a hypoxic environment. So let's get into the weeds a little bit to understand the benefits specifically to cyclists. There are two studies that use repeated sprint training in hypoxia to show promising results. The first is the original study where the sprints are done in a hypoxic chamber set at 3,000 meters. And the second is using the voluntary hyperventilation at low lung volume to induce a hypoxic state. So the first study is what sparked the interest in repeated sprint training in hypoxia. They wanted to know if it could enhance repeated sprint ability performed in normoxia. 40 trained subjects completed eight cycling repeated sprint sessions in hypoxia at 3,000 meters or normoxia at 485 meters. The session was a 10-minute warm-up followed by 3 by 5 by 10 all-out, 20-second active recovery, 5 minutes rest between sets, and then a 10-minute cool-down. Before and after repeated sprint ability was tested until exhaustion, this was 10 seconds work-to-rest ratio of 1 to 2. From before to after, the average power output of all sprints increased to the same extent, so 6% in the hypoxia and 7% in the normoxia. But 
the number of sprints to exhaustion was increased in hypoxia, 9.4 plus or minus 4.8 versus 13 plus or minus 6.2. So 9.4 and then increasing to 13. In normoxia, the sprints did not increase. So they stayed around the same, 9.3 versus 8.9. The findings show a larger improvement in repeated sprint performance in hypoxia than in normoxia with significant molecular adaptions and larger blood perfusion variations in active muscles. So that's the study that kicked it off. The second study uses repeated sprint exercises in hypoxia induced by VHL the exhale hold technique that I mentioned earlier. It was published in 2017 and it aimed to investigate the acute responses to repeated sprint exercise in hypoxia induced by VHL. Nine well-trained subjects performed two sets of eight six-second sprints on an ergo followed by 24 seconds of inactive recovery. The repeated sprint exercise was randomly carried out with normal breathing or with the VHL. Peak and mean power output of each sprint were measured. Other measurements included blood lactate concentration, which was measured at the end of the first and second set. The results, there was no difference in peak and mean power output between conditions in all sprints. Arterial oxygen saturation and heart rate were lower in voluntary hyperventilation at low lung volume than in normal breathing. Lactate was lower in the VHL at the end of the exercise, 10.3 versus 13.8 millimoles a litre. This study shows that performing repeated sprint exercise with voluntary hyperventilation at low lung volume led to larger arterial and muscle deoxygenation than with normal breathing while maintaining similar power output. In other words, this study shows that the VHL did not induce greater fatigue, nor was it perceived harder than repeated sprint efforts at normoxia. Second, it's recommended to perform at least two sets of six sprints or more to expect a benefit from this method. And third, it's not advised to exceed six seconds for each sprint. So this second study, the results weren't so clear. There was no real conclusions that they were able to come to because the output didn't change, but there are some things changing underneath. And so of course they go on to recommend more studies. What I have here for the final study is a case report that was done in late 2019. And this case report is going through the performance benefits in a professional cyclist. And you can use these recommendations in your own training if you have access to a hypoxic chamber. This pro did 150 repeated sprints in normobaric hypoxia over 10 days, three weeks after his yearly 26-day season break, so early in the season's base phase. He did five repeated sprint training in hypoxia sessions at a simulated altitude of 3,300 meters on his own bike on a trainer. Each session consisted in two isolated reference sprints and four blocks of seven all-out sprints lasting six seconds, interspersed by 14 seconds of active recovery, targeting 200 watts for optimal lactate removal and pyruvate synthesis. Power output and heart rate were monitored. Lactate concentration and pulse oxygen saturation were measured at the start and the end of each block during the first and fifth training session. The results of all of these sprints, when comparing the first and the fifth training session, peak power increased for the best one-second value by 8% and the best five-second average by 10%. The average power for all blocks, including active recoveries, increased from 334 watts to 354 watts. 
So in conclusion, this case report illustrates a 10-day repeated sprint training and hypoxia intervention perceived as efficient in a professional cyclist and shown to improve total work produced for a similar physiological strain. They do go on here to say that the athlete reported lots of good signs in the early races of the year where they were in a sprint train and they needed some of this. To me, it was kind of interesting how they placed this at the very beginning of their season. This could have been logistically the best place to do it because they were at home training, so they had easy access to the chamber. But overall, there is potential here. I think they need to do some more studies to hone in on exactly when this is useful. But overall, what do you think? For me, it still is in that certainly worth a try category if you have access to a hypoxic chamber. And even giving the exhale hold technique a go, there are some benefits. So if you're going to give it a shot, I say just make sure you're testing before and after to see exactly how it is impacting you. You may not be, have access to all of the detailed measures that we're doing. So just go with the impacts, max power, mean power, or do the repeated sprint test to see if you're actually increasing the number of times you can sprint because you did this training. But that's all I've got for this show. Ride Better, Faster is written and hosted and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well.